peace, but it's also a greeting uh, among our Jewish friends, particularly in Israel. And so you now know a Hebrew word if you didn't before this morning. Uh, Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that we have together to gather as believers to open your word, to worship you both in song and in uh, responding to the word of God. And as I open it this morning, I pray that I would be clear in what I say and how I say it. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We love you, and we pray these things in the Messiah's name. Amen. You go to the the first slide. This morning, um, I'm going to be speaking from uh, the book of Romans on Israel, past, present, and future. Uh, For those of you who uh, weren't in Sunday school, my name is Ty Perry, serve with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, ministering to the Jewish community of Metro Detroit. And so this morning I wanted to take you into the scriptures and uh, look at the nation of Israel. Uh, If we can go to the next slide, you may know this man if you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof. Has anyone seen either the the play or you've watched the the movie version of Fiddler on the Roof? Uh, This is Tevye the Dairy Man. And Tevya, of course, is a, a Jewish man living in Anatevka, a little uh, shtetl, a little town in Eastern Europe, in Russia. And uh, in one day, Tevya gets very good news and very bad news. The good news is that his, the, the local butcher, who's very prosperous, has asked to marry his eldest daughter. Now, this is big news because... The, the pipeline of financial stability from the butcher will go from his butcher to his daughter. He knows his daughter is going to be stable, and he, as a, as a relative, will have some more stability, being a very poor man in a poor place. But that same day, after celebrating uh, maybe a little too much with the, uh, the local butcher, he's on his way home, and he's singing, and the local constable comes. You remember this if you've seen this. Local constable, he's a Gentile, of course, and he comes to Tevye and he tells him there's going to be some trouble. Now, when the local constable in a, in a Roman or in a Russian town comes to a Jewish person and says there's trouble, it means a lot more than trouble at this time. And what's going to happen is what's called a pogrom. And historically, these happen all over Eastern Europe. They were uh, attacks by the local church, uh, usually under government sanction, where they attacked the local Jewish community. They would uh, rape the women, kill everyone that they could, simply because they're Jewish. And Tevya, after he gets this news, he's on his way home, sobered now, uh, theoret- or figuratively and, and literally, by this news, and he offers up this prayer to God. He's always talking to the Lord throughout the movie, and he says, Dear God, did you have to send me news like that today of all days? I know, I know, we're the chosen people, but once in a while, can't you choose somebody else? You know, that's the the sentiment that many of my Jewish friends share. Oh, being the, the chosen people is not something they're excited about. In fact, I will often say, you know, you're a blessed people. And they'll say, blessed. Yeah, right. Have you looked at our history? You go to the next slide. I can't blame them. Uh, you may have followed this just uh, a few weeks ago, or excuse me, a couple months ago at the uh, Bloomfield Hills High School, so just uh, about an hour south of here. There was an anti-Israel speaker who came, and she, uh, she was supposed to speak about diversity and things like this, and she ended up blasting Israel and making the Jewish students feel very unsafe. In fact, there was 
uh, a lot of tension after that talk uh, between Arab students and Jewish students. Uh, in Ann Arbor, every Saturday morning, there is a man who stands outside of a synagogue there with, with uh, signs protesting Israel, uh, with anti-Semitic slurs about the Jewish people. I was just talking with a lady a few weeks ago. She attends that synagogue. She's seen that man. She says it terrifies them. Jewish people have been the, the target of so much animosity throughout the centuries, and they continue to be today. So you can understand why being chosen isn't exactly viewed as being a good thing. But I want to look today, we can go to the next slide, at what does God say about the Jewish people Israel? Uh, I'm sorry, and this was actually uh, one I, I forgot about, but this happened uh, that you're seeing on the screen in Tampa. Uh, these are anti-Israel protesters, and they're screaming at Orthodox passersby. So it's happening all over the place. In the United States, uh, in the last several years, it's up some uh, 34, 35% anti-Semitism right here in the, in the United States. We'll go to the next slide. Uh, I want to look at what, Paul, what God says about the Jewish people. And we're going to begin in Romans 9. So if you would, open, open to Romans 9. And so you have some context for Romans 9. You have to remember the, the setup of the book of Romans. Okay? It opens, you remember, as, as kind of this courtroom scene. And we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, where not only are, are the Jewish people, they are guilty because they have all this revelation. They have, they have God, they have the Torah, they, have the, the, they, they were at Sinai, and they have turned away from God, and they're guilty. And the Gentiles are guilty because they have creation that testifies of God, and, and they have turned away from him and the knowledge of God, and they've worshipped uh, the creation rather than the creator. And so Romans opens with this courtroom scene that all are guilty, but that salvation is made possible only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Romans 8, you would kind of think Romans 8 might be the very pinnacle of the book of Romans. Because Romans 8, actually, why don't you look there with me, uh, at verse th Romans 8, 38 and 39. This segues into Romans 9. Paul has talked about, he, wrote, he opens in Romans 8 with that nothing, or excuse me, that there is no condemnation now for those who are in the Messiah Jesus. You are saved. You are no longer condemned. The wrath of God does not abide on you anymore. And in Romans 8.38, he writes this. You know this passage well, I'm sure. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you're a believer today, what can you say to that? Amen. He goes through, in Romans 38, or chapter, verses 38 and 39 of chapter 8, you almost get out of breath as you're reading it, because he is exhaustive in talking about the things that cannot separate us from God's love. But as, he's, as he ends this, he then goes into Romans 9, and in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he's going to talk about Israel. Why might he do that? Because what is probably on the minds of the Roman believers as they read this? Okay, Paul, got it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Height, depth, we understand that. But what about the Jewish people? 
What if, like the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, you reject the Messiah? Surely that would separate you from the love of God. Surely rejecting the promised Messiah, the one who has been prophesied in all of your scriptures, surely that would mean you're done. There is no future for you as a people. Now there are denominations today, there are Christians who believe that that is true. That because the nation of Israel rejected the Messiah, God is done with that people. There is no future for Israel. Individual Jewish people can be saved, of course, but as a nation there is no future. Paul spends three chapters out of 16 in the book of Romans destroying that argument. And I want us to look at that. Look, if you would, uh, and we go to the next slide, look at uh, Romans 9, verses 1 and 2. I'm sorry, not the next slide, but we're fine. Uh, Paul says this, I say the truth in Christ, or Messiah, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Let's stop there. Who is writing this? This is the Apostle Paul. If ever there was a spiritual giant, it's Paul, right? He wrote most a uh, good chunk of our New Testament. He is the, the apostle who has one of the most tremendous testimonies of coming to faith in the Lord Jesus that anyone has. And he just wrote about how nothing can separate us from the love of God. And yet, this spiritual giant can open Romans 9 by saying that his heart is just continually grieved. It's heavy. What could possibly grieve a spiritual giant's heart like Paul? We'll look at verse 3. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Do you see what Paul says here? What grieves Paul's heart? is that his own people, the Jewish people, do not know their Messiah. They are, they are separated from Christ. And, and he has such love for his own people, he says something that, that I don't know if I could say about other people. He says that if it were possible, he would be accursed. He would, be, he would go to hell if it meant the salvation of his people. Can you say that about anyone in your life? I'm not sure if I can. But Paul's heart is such for his people that he says, if it were possible, I would do it. These are Paul's people. He grieves for them. And in verses 4 and 5, we're going to see, we can go to the next slide, or we're at the right slide. Uh, he's going to describe these people. Who are these people? Well, we'll see they're a privileged people. Israel, the Jewish people, are a privileged people. Look at verses 4 and 5. He, he, we pick up mid-sentence here. He says, my kinsmen according to the flesh, and then verse 4, who are Israelites? That's an old term. We'd say, who are the Jewish people? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises? Whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ, or Messiah, came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Let's break this down just a little bit. 
Paul says this is a, a privileged people. How do we know who are these people? Well, he says, to, to them pertains the adoption. What's the adoption? Well, if you read back in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 11 and 12, in Genesis 11, we see the Tower of Babel. And what happens as, as the nations have come out of the flood and the nations form, and they're all worshiping, they all, or they're all working together, they have one language, one purpose, they're going to build a civilization. Who is the missing part of their civilization? Who do they not want to be part of it? The Lord. We are going to build a tower. We are going to make a name for ourselves. We, 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 we. God is not involved in it. It's a godless, secular society. Sound familiar? Maybe? Live in a secular, godless society? And so God confuses their language, but his purpose to bring the Messiah into the world is not going to be thwarted. Because we turn to Genesis 12, and who do we see comes on the, on the scene? A pagan idol worshiper from a place called Ur of the Chaldees. Today we'd call it Iraq. And his name is Avram, Abram. And he calls Abram, and he's, he promises him some things. He's going to make him a great nation. He adopts Abram. This man who had nothing to do with God, he adopts him. And this through him will come the chosen people. They are a people that has been adopted. Secondly, he, he mentions the glory. What's the glory? Well, it's the very glory of God. Well, you say, okay, well, how did, how did Israel have the glory of God? Well, think about this. When they are being led out of Egypt in the Exodus, who is their human leader? Moses. But who is Moses following? Remember, by day and by night. What is it by day? It's a pillar of cloud that leads them by day. At night, it's a flame of fire. It's the, in the Hebrew, it's the Shekinah. It's the Shekinah, or the Shekinah glory of God. It is God's presence made manifest. It's the glory of God that leads them. God doesn't just give them directions and say, here you go, meet you in Israel. No, he says, here, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to guide you. And so he dwells with them. When they're in the wilderness, what do they construct? God gives uh, Moses very specific instructions to build a structure called the what? The tabernacle, right? Why is it called the tabernacle? Tabernacle means to dwell because God, the Shekinah glory of God, is going to dwell inside that tent, inside the tabernacle. And it's a holy place. Not just anyone can go in there. Later, when they're in Israel, finally in the land, God gives them the temple, instruction to build the temple. And there is a court of the Gentiles, where all of us, kind of the, the motley crew, can go. And then there's the court of the Jewish women, the court of the Jewish men and the priests. But inside of that building, there is a place called the Holy of Holies. Who's in there? The Shekinah, the glory of God. This is the only nation on earth that has had the very glory of God with them. And then he mentions the covenants, that, that, that these people have they've received covenants from God. If we could go to the next slide, I want you to see there are seven covenant or five covenants made with Israel. Now, a covenant is more than just, it's not a, not a contract. These are, these are binding promises that God makes. It, you'd, you'd literally say God cuts covenants with the people. 
Because often when he would make a covenant, their animals had to be slaughtered. There was blood ratifying this covenant. What were these covenants? Well, first there's the Abrahamic covenant. We find this in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15. This is the covenant where God says to Abram that he's going to give him a land, he's going to give him a seed, he's going to give him a blessing. And in Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is the, the, the covenant, the initial covenant. Later, we have the Mosaic covenant, which builds on top of these, this Abrahamic covenant. By the way, that Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. So when God says, that land is yours there in Israel, guess what? It's always theirs. So we can spare the UN having to figure that out, can't we? He's already decided. The Mosaic covenant is the covenant God makes with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. We, we often don't call it a covenant, we call it the law. The giving of the law or the Torah. God gives them these laws. And it is not, it's not as if, if, if Israel keeps these laws, they will, they will go to heaven. That's not the purpose. The purpose of the law is, first of all, to keep them separate from the nations. Why is that? Why would, they, why would God want this nation to be separate from the rest of the world? Well, do you remember what just happened in Genesis 11? When there was the Tower of Babel, and the nations were going to come together, and they're going to have a godless society, God says, no, this nation I've adopted. This nation Israel is going to be different. You know, we often talk in, in Christian circles about biblical separation, the need to be separated from the world, and we do. And Israel had to be separated from the world. They weren't to engage in the pagan practices and in the pagan culture that worshipped other gods. They were to remain true to God. But they were to be separated from the world and unto whom? Unto the Lord. Same for us, by the way. We are not just to be, to be alienated from bad things in the world and have a fortress mentality. We are to be separated from the world so that we can have a witness to the world. They can see a difference in us. And that was the case with the nation of Israel. But how would they be a witness to the nations? Because if you read throughout the Old Testament, you never see a great commission, do you? You don't see God saying to the nation of Israel, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go into the world and make disciples of every creature. That's not what we see. So he gives them a piece of real estate. And that brings us to the land covenant. You see, the land was more than just a gift to Israel. If you look on a map and you see Israel, it's this tiny Tiny country, it would fit inside Lake Michigan, believe it or not. Why is that little piece of real estate so important? Well, it's, if you look at it, it is a land bridge. You want to come up from Africa, go into Asia or up into Europe, where do you have to go? Israel. You want to come from Europe and, and, and do some trading down in the Middle East, where do you have to go? Through Israel. And as these nations of the world come to that little bridge in the Middle East, they're going to encounter a people. They're a peculiar people. They're a different people. Why? Because they are not worshiping idols. They don't worship gods of different regions. They don't have the god of, of, this, uh, of, of Mayville that they worship, right? They don't have a god that creates rain and one god who is the god of the sun. No, they have a god who they claim is the only god, the creator of all things, and all men are accountable to him. Wow, that's strange. And so it is a reverse missionary uh, condition. Instead of sending the Jewish people out as God sends the church out, the role for Israel was that the nations would come to them and that they should be a witness. And that was part of the land. 
But in this land covenant, God says to the nation, the land I gave you, it's yours. But you better obey my commandments when you're in that land. You better behave. Because if you don't behave, I'm going to take you out of there. You are not representing me well. I'll take you out and I'll scatter you all throughout the world. You know, I, I always like this picture. Uh, when I was 17, 16 or 17, I passed my driver's license, my, my driver's test. My, my parents, my mom got a newer car and uh, I got her used 1997 Pontiac Sunfire, which is not a hot car at all. Okay, it's very... Not, not a fun car, but it was, it was my car. And my parents said, it's your car, here's the keys. You pay for the oil, you pay for the gas, you, you take care of it, it's your car. But guess what? If you don't abide by the rules of our house, we take your keys to your car. My enjoying that, that car was conditioned on my obedience to my parents' commands, right? And it's the same for the nation of Israel. It's their land. But God reserves the right to remove them for disobedience and then following obedience to bring them back. And that's the land covenant. In the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel, if you remember this, David, he, he's looking around at his beautiful palace and he says in, in modern parlance, good grief, I have this beautiful home. And he looks out and sees the tabernacle, this tent, and he says, why should God dwell in a tent while I dwell in a palace? I want to build him a temple. And the prophet uh, Nathan says, yeah, go ahead. And what, what happens? God comes to him in the, in the night and says, no, 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 appreciate it, but you're a man of bloodshed. Your son will build me a temple. You want to build me a house? I'm going to do you one better, David. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. That's where we get the term, the house of David. There's going, you're going to have a kingdom that will not end. There will be someone on the throne or able to be on the throne forever. It'll be an eternal throne. This points, of course, to the Lord Jesus, who is the descendant of the, the king of Israel, the descendant of David, who will, when he returns, sit on what? On the throne of David in Jerusalem. He will reign forever. And then we have in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. The new covenant is made possible by the shed blood of Jesus in which God promises to the nation that upon their faith in him as a nation, he will bless them. He will, they will come into a new covenant, not like the one that, uh, of the uh, Mosaic covenant, not the old covenant. This will be new. It will be, instead of chiseled on stone, it will be written on their heart. They will have a new nature. The Spirit of God will control them. And that is yet future, as we will see. Further, he promises the, the law or the Torah, which kept Israel distinct and holy. The temple service, the Jewish people were the only ones who were able to serve God in the temple. He mentions here the, the promises. What are the promises? Well, all throughout the scriptures you read promises made to Israel that aren't necessarily covenants, but they're promises. Promises that the king will, will come again. Promises that there will be a kingdom that will be set up in Jerusalem. And then finally, if we look in verse 5, he says, whose are the fathers? Who are the fathers? We're not talking about the early church fathers. We're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. And most importantly, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Messiah came, Christ, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. 
So Jesus himself will come. The Messiah himself will come from the Jewish people. Salvation, as Jesus said, is of the Jews. But Paul tells us something else. And if you will, we'll go to the next slide. And I'd like for you to jump over to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. Again, I encourage you to read these whole chapters. I'm just trying to give you a survey of them. But in Romans 10, Paul opens by describing Israel not only as Paul's people, not only as a privileged people, but also as a lost people. Look at verse 1. Brethren, so he's speaking to fellow believers, Paul writes, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. We must, by the way, we must run from the idea that the Jewish people don't need Jesus because they're the chosen people. Now, they are chosen to bring the Messiah into this world, but they need him just as much as we do, right? And Paul writes that. He wants Israel to be saved. Look at verse 2. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Hmm. When you were saved, I hope you are. You know, no one, of course, is born a Christian. One must be born again to be a Christian. It comes to that point when you recognize your sinfulness and the righteousness of, of Jesus who died on your behalf and you trust in him. When that happened, when, when you got saved, was it because one morning you woke up and said, you know what, I am a terrible sinner. And I bet you that God, though he is, though he is uh, just, he is also merciful. And he sent his son, the Messiah, to die on my behalf. And if I put my trust in him, I will be saved. Is that how that worked, that you just concocted that, the gospel message in your own mind? No. How did you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, undoubtedly, whatever your story is, whether it was someone talking to you and sharing the gospel or, or otherwise, it involved this, right? It involved the word of God. And so Paul says that this people have a great zeal for God. They're zealous for God. They go to synagogue every week. They, they have all these uh, rituals to, to think about God and to remember, remember the Passover and to celebrate things he's done. But guess what? It is a zeal without knowledge. Why? Because the knowledge of God comes not from culture and religiosity. It comes from the word of God. Amen? It comes from this. And so Paul says they, they're ignorant of the, ver of the truth, of the knowledge. And he goes on in verse 3. He says, for they, he's building his argument here, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness. By the way, the Jewish people are not an ignorant people, generally speaking. They're some of the most brilliant people the world has ever seen. They make up less than 1% of the world's population, but they've received some 25% of all Nobel Prizes for their contributions to our world. We should be thankful for them. So Paul's not saying the Jewish people, they're ignorant. He's saying they're ignorant concerning the gospel. And because they're ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves under the righteousness of God. This is not a problem that only plagues the Jewish people. You see, that's why we have world religions. That's why we have 
various world systems and philosophies is that apart from understanding the righteousness of God that he has revealed to us in his word and in his son, we're going to try to fill that vacuum that only God can fill with anything we can concoct. And so they try to establish their own righteousness. And they have not submitted unto the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? Maybe the better question is, who is the righteousness of God? It is Jesus. And we see that in verse 4. For Christ, for Messiah, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Hmm. So Israel's problem is that they are not all in right standing with God. They, don't, they, they, they need to be born again just as you and I do. Nationally, they rejected the Messiah. Paul will write later in verses 6 and 7, they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham. A lot of Jewish people then and even now think, well, I'm, I'm right with God. I know I'm going to heaven because I'm Jewish. I'm part of the covenant people. And God says, no, that's not enough. That's, that makes you part of the chosen people for my purposes. That does not mean you are a saved person. Any more than we might say in our context, growing up in a church and reading our Bible and giving, uh, being baptized or, or taking communion, none of that makes us a Christian. So Paul's desire is for the salvation of his people. And their need is the righteousness of God who is the Messiah. Well, I would like you to turn to Romans 11. 11 1. We can go to the next slide. So Israel, they are Paul's people. They are a privileged people. They are a lost people. They are also, Paul writes, a people of hope. Verse 1, Paul writes, I say then, hath God cast away his people? Very important that we answer that correctly. Remember I said that there are, there are believers, brothers and sisters in the Lord, who say that God has no future for this people Israel. They're done. They can get saved, but all those promises God made to them, it's all, it's all done. So has God cast away his people? What's Paul's answer? God forbid. May it never be. For, and he says, how do I know God has not cast away his people? He says, because I look at myself in the mirror every morning. Look at what he says. For I also am an Israelite. He says, I'm Jewish. Of the seed of Abraham. Of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, look at my life. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Remember, he was, he was taught in the, se the greatest seminary of his day under Gamaliel. He knew Judaism like nobody's business. His pedigree was impeccable. He could trace his, his lineage all the way back to Abraham. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, but look at me. God has saved me. And he's using me. I am exhibit A. God has not cast away the Jewish people. He has a future for us. And if you don't believe it, just look at me. He reiterates this in verses 2 and following. God has not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not, that what the scripture saith of Elias, or Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed thy prophets and dig down thy altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. Do you remember that? Elijah 
thinks he's living in a very dark day. And he thinks, I am the only Jewish man in this whole country who loves the Lord. Do you ever feel that way? I do. I don't know about the only one, but I look around and I say, boy, where, are there believers in the world anymore who love the Lord, who, want to, who, who seek after righteousness? Doesn't seem like it. Seems like a dark world. That's what Elijah was saying. He says, I'm, I'm the only one, and they seek to kill me. They want to annihilate us all, all, all of the believers. And look at four, verse 4. But what saith the answer of God unto him? What does God say? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. What's God's answer? He says, Elijah, you're not the only one. Come on, get up. You're okay. There are 7,000 believers in the nation of Israel besides you. There's always a remnant, and that's Paul's point. And he writes that in verse 5. Even so, then, at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. There, there's always a segment of Jewish people, the remnant, who are believers in the Lord Jesus. So God has not cast away his people. We can go to the next slide. That shows this. God has not cast away his people, Israel. God has a program for Israel. He has a plan for Israel. But you know what? It's paused right now. Why is it paused? Well, it's because of that rejection. Remember after, after the nation's rejection of Israel, or excuse me, Israel's rejection of the Messiah? Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the leaders of the people, and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who killed the prophets and stoned those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather you together as a mother hen gathers her baby chicks, but you would not. He says, see, your house is left unto you desolate until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is he saying? He says, Israel, my own Jewish nation, you've had more revelation than any people. When, I, when, when, we, when God sends prophets to you, you don't listen to them, quite the opposite, just like Elijah. You stone them. You kill them. You don't want to hear the word of God. And he says, and you haven't wanted to hear me either. And I'm the Messiah, the very son of God. And he says, so guess what? I'm going to leave your house to you desolate, just the way you want it. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to be here. But if you look at that, there's no period there. It's a comma. It says, until... This is always one of the best words. Until and but are great words in the Bible because it means there's grace and there's hope coming. And, and, and God says, Jesus says, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you know what that is? That's a quotation from, from the Psalms. From Psalm, I believe it's 118. And it's a Psalm that the Jewish people recognize they are going to say that when the Messiah returns. They're going to call on the Messiah by saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so there's coming a time when the Jewish nation of Israel is going to come back into the focus of God's plan. He's going to hit play on them again. Israel has a future of persecution and of chastening and of salvation. We read in, in the prophets in Daniel chapter 9, Matthew 24 and other places of a great persecution that will happen in the last days against the Jewish people following the rapture. Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. But then Paul tells us that there is coming a day when the Jewish people will be saved. 
you can go to the next slide. I want us to focus in closing on one more people. And that is the church. You can go to the next slide. The church is a people with a mission. Look at verses 11 and 12. He asks again a question. He says, I say then, have they, Israel, have they stumbled that they should fall? Let's stop there. Has Israel stumbled? Answer, yes. Who did they stumble over? The rock of offense, the chief cornerstone that nobody, or the, the, the stumbling stone, the rock of offense that nobody wanted in Israel. It's the reject. And when it comes to the person of Jesus, that's where the Jewish people stumble. In fact, when I'm talking to many of my Jewish friends, we'll be talking about the Bible and we say, yep, agree on that. Yep, agree on that. Yep, agree on that. Oh, and then there's the Messiah Jesus. No, can't do that. That's their point of stumbling. That's a rock of offense. And in Psalm 118, God says the, chief, the, 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 the rock of offense, that stumbling stone, will become the chief cornerstone. The reject of the nation is going to become the very thing that they're built on in the future. And Paul writes this, continuing on in verse 12, or in, in verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled? Answer, yes, but is it that they should fall? Meaning fall from grace. There's no future for them. He says, God forbid, but rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto thee. What's your Bible say? Gentiles. I'm looking around. I think that's 100% of us here. Okay? Gentiles, non-Jewish people, the nations, the, the salvation, the gospel goes out to the nations. Are you glad that salvation has not, did not stop at the Israeli border? I'm glad for that, because I'm not Jewish. But we can be thankful. God says the gospel is going to go out to the nations, and that the nations are going to be saved. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus today, you are a saved person. You are a representative of that fact, that Gentiles will come to him. And salvation doesn't just come to us for our own benefit. Why does it come to us? Well, look what Paul says. But rather through their fall, salvation is coming to the Gentiles. Why? For to provoke them to, what's it say? Jealousy. I have uh, two children at home. Third due on Saturday. So we'll see if that happens. But the two at home, I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And I witness this all the time. My four-year-old has uh, forgotten a lot about many of the toys she has. Um, and my two-year-old son will be digging in the toy box, and oh, he finds this toy. And he goes over here, and he starts playing with it. My daughter hasn't seen that toy for six months, right? But guess what happens? The moment she sees her brother playing with the toy, what does she want more than everything else in the world? That toy. That is exactly God's plan and his program for the church and for the Jewish people. That is more, the church today is predominantly Gentile in its makeup. I know Jewish believers, but most believers today are Gentile. And the Jewish people are to look at, at believers, Gentile believers, and they are to say, hey, they, they gather on Sunday, we gather on Saturday, they gather on Sunday, and they worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those people have joy. Those people have peace. Those people have the fruit of the Spirit. They don't know that term, but they have the fruit of the Spirit. I should have that. That's my right. 
What is the Gentile's privilege in that point? It is to say, you're right, Jewish friend, you're right. Let me show you how you can have what I have. And that's found in the person of Jesus. So salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy. Look at verse 12. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness... God says, through Paul, if their rejection of the Messiah means riches in Christ for the Gentiles, for us, the the Jewish people back in Jesus' day, they called us the dogs, the nations. They're kind of the people that you don't want to be with them. If it meant riches for those dogs, what do you think is going to be the case when the Jewish people come to faith in the Messiah? That's Paul's argument here. It's going to be great fullness, great riches for them. Well, last slide here. What is the church's relationship to Israel? Well, we are not Israel. We are not the Jewish people. I've heard people, um, I think well-meaning people say, you know, I'm, I'm spiritually a Jew. Biblically, no, you're not. You're a Gentile. You're a, believe, a Gentile who believes in the Jewish Messiah. Israel is Israel, the church is the church. Israel is an ethnic nation, right? They're they're a a family of people, descendants of 12 tribes begun in Genesis 12. The church, or from every tribe, tongue, nation, Jewish, Gentile, begun at Pentecost, every believer is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Throughout his epistles, Paul makes that distinction very clear. Secondly, we are benefiting from Israel's fall. How are we benefiting? Well, we got the gospel on the rebound, didn't we? Their rejection meant riches for us. And then thirdly, we are tasked with making Israel jealous. I want to ask you this question. I know many of you don't have interactions with Jewish people on a regular basis. That's fine. But the principle is the same. Is your faith, is your walk with the Lord enviable? When people look at you and they look at your life, is it a train wreck? Or do they say, you know what, those people, they, they go through trials. They, they, they have difficulties. They have health scares. They have financial problems. But you know what, there's still a peace about them. They still have a joy about them. There's something different about them. I want that. Does that happen? I have to ask myself that as a believer. Am I making people jealous for what they can have in the Messiah, in Jesus. Well, if we learn this, but we miss what it tells us about the person of God, then we've missed the entire point. God is faithful when Israel is not. Do you see that? God is long-suffering with the Jewish people. God does not replace or give up on the recipients of his promises. Oh, I'm so glad for that. If God, because this is the the truth, if God can make all these promises to the Jewish people, but then the Jewish people reject him and they're unfaithful to him, and God can just say, okay, done with you, I give him reason to do that almost every hour, probably. I hope I'm not the only one. I'm sure you can identify with that. But he is faithful. He, He does not replace or give up on the recipients of his promises. He is true to his word, and we can trust him. So the church must have a heart for the whole world, just as God does. Jewish, Gentile, black, white, doesn't matter.
But the church must also have a special burden for the Jewish people, for the nation God calls in Zechariah to the apple of his eye. God will keep every promise he's ever made to Israel. And so as, as believers, can we say with Paul that our heart's desire and our prayer to God for Israel is that they will be saved. If it's not, that can be a very simple action point in your life. Just to say, you know what? When I'm praying, I have my devotions, I'm going to make a point of praying for the salvation of the Jewish people, even if I don't know any. And then secondly, we can be praying that the Lord would work in us to make our lives something that people look at and see a witness as, see a witness there, and they want it. And it gives us an opportunity for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. We live in a world where everything is crooked, where we see illusions, and your word is true and straight, and it is the rule and guide for our lives as believers. Father, I pray that we would have a heart for the Jewish people, that we would desire their salvation, that we would be the best friend the nation of Israel and the Jewish people could ever have, be in Bible-believing Christians. And Lord, on a personal level, I pray that whether we know Jewish people or not, that our, our lives would be enviable. Not just our lives in the flesh, but I mean our lives in you, what it means to walk with the Lord and to know you. I pray that that would be evident as we walk each day and that people would want that and that we would be able to tell them uh, the reason for the hope that lies within us. We thank you for this time together in your word and we pray these things in the Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for that message and that reminder. In closing, we're going to sing a verse of invitation, 328.